Have a service, project, or product you need to get the word out on? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com and ask about our podcast sponsorship packages. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. I can't stand the rain. I'm a rep this here till I walk up on death down in the Shelby Drive, look alive, look alive. Down in the sweet old Memphis, Tennessee, y'all. Down in down, down in Memphis, Tennessee, now. Hey, 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 I say. Hello, and welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. Today on the show, we'll be covering the 2019 Memphis Music Hall of Fame induction class, which will be officially inducted during a ceremony on November 8th at the Cannon Center. But first, I'll be joined by musicians Robbie Grant and Jonathan Kirksey, who are here to discuss their new album, Mellotron Variations, a fascinating collection of songs playing exclusively, played exclusively on an obscure electromechanical keyboard known as, you guessed it, the Mellotron. So both men have had impressive music careers before releasing this album, with Robbie having played with local stalwarts Big Ash Truck and Mouse Rocket, along with his great solo project Vending Machine, while Jonathan is a cellist with the Memphis Symphony Orchestra and the composer of several recent film scores, including last year's soundtrack to the Mr. Rogers documentary Won't You Be My Neighbor. But for uh, even longtime fans of their work, the music they've created together on the Mellotron signals something radically new. So it goes without saying that many of you out there are probably unfamiliar with the Mellotron, like myself, but it's uh, just as likely that you've heard it played on songs from artists ranging from the Moody Blues to David Bowie, and perhaps most notably on the Beatles classic Strawberry Fields Forever. So last year, Robbie and Jonathan, who had previously released a Mellotron-centric album together called Duets for Mellotron, teamed up with John Modeski of Modeski, Martin and & Wood and Pat Sensone, of Wilco to play a group performance at Crosstown Arts. So the recording of that show was released last month as the album Mellotron Variations on Spaceflight Records, and a concert film is forthcoming. So before we sit down with Robbie and Jonathan, let's take a listen to one of my favorite tracks from the album. This is the song Pulsar from the album Mellotron Variations.
without further ado, let me welcome Robbie Grant and Jonathan Kirksey to the show. Thank you both so much for making it out. And congratulations on the album. Oh, thanks. Thanks. thanks very much. Thanks, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, so we, before we get into this particular project, I think we should lay some groundwork down, shine a little light on what in the hell is a Mellotron and uh, specifically, how does it, how do the mechanics differ from, say, a synthesizer, maybe a similar kind of instrument? Uh, well, uh, the Mellotron is is an analog instrument. It it has um, for for each key on the instrument, there's a strip of magnetic tape that when you press down the key, it it starts uh, rolling over the tape head and plays back whatever's on the tape, whatever's recorded on the tape. So usually that's some kind of instrument, like uh, a flute is sort of one of the most classic Mellotron instruments. Um, but it could be anything. It could be any sort of instrument or sound effect or human voice. Actually, some some great uh, uh, vocal sounds on the Mellotron are kind of weird and wacky and um, strangely out of tune. But <laughs> Right, right. That's one of the things that I really enjoy about it. It's got that kind of ethereal haunting. Yep. And no circuits. I mean, the synthesizer's mm-hmm. all circuits. Right, right, it's right. all mechanical. It's a motor that's pulling the tape over the tape head. Uh, actually, there's as many tape heads as there are keys. Wow. So, mm-hmm. and then, and it's just like an, usually like a seven or eight second sample and that's it. And there's right. not a loop you, And then there's a spring that pulls the tape back. So mm-hmm. it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's unique to play. It's unique sounding for sure. And all of these are fed in by you. Are, are you? So, so when you buy a Mellotron, so like, you know, when you buy a synthesizer, you've got a, a ton of sounds. Sure. When you buy a Mellotron, you have to make a decision like, okay, I like these three sounds. Mm-hmm. And so you can have, three sounds on a cassette and then you to unload a cassette takes, you know, five to 10 minutes. So if you want to put another three sounds in there, you put those sounds right. in. So you buy those and then there's two places in the world right now that, that provide those. So wow. most of, most of them come with the Mellotron and, and we did a, um, as part of this project, we actually recorded our own cut and created our own custom cassette. So we went over to American recording, uh, sampled some uh, symphony players, uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan, me playing guitar. And then we sent all those out over to London and they created like this cassette that we brought back and we've been using uh, for the thing. It's been, it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's really yeah. Neat. It's yeah, pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Was there a heyday of the Maldron or is it always been kind of a relatively obscure? Uh, well, I guess, I guess it's heyday was probably in the sixties and seventies and until smaller, uh, you know, more convenient types of samplers were available because Mellotron's a big, heavy, bulky instrument, right. and it's it's difficult to cart around from gig to gig. Um, and, and they promoted it for consumer use, like use at your house, like to entertain. But it was still pretty expensive and big. And bands like Black Sabbath and Yes, mm-hmm. they took one on the road, and so that's how what Black Sabbath would use for its their sound effects. Gotcha. And so when that they. They didn't necessarily care about the cool, you know, the 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 flute sounds and yeah, stuff like that. Right. They were using it for sound effects. And once technology caught up, they were like, eh, this is a bit bulky. It's a bit bulky. So uh, tell me a bit about your, you guys' exposure, first exposure to it. And then how did you start working together on that first Mellotron album? Sure. So um, I've got a really good old friend of mine, Winston Eggleston, and he, uh, he collects Mellotron. So we've been friends since high school, and he built one about – uh, about four or five years ago, he built one, like built the wood, the outside of it. And he worked with the guy overseas that sent him the insides of it, went over to his house and he was, you know, I played it. I was like, what are you 
doing with this? And he's like, <laughs> nothing. Cause he doesn't really play keyboard either. And so, uh, I'm like, well, maybe we should do a little show at your house. And he's like, all right. So we, you know, we're like, and I was like, well, and then I was been, you know, cross town was just getting off the ground and sure. we did the first show over across the street before the concourse uh, here in Memphis was done. Um, and when I was thinking like, Oh, we'll do a duets for Mellotron. No one's, I looked it up, you know, just go quick Google search. Mm. No one's ever done a duets for Mellotron. Mm, yeah. And, uh, and so when the first person I thought of to work with was Jonathan. So w- the way I list our credits, it's like I'm mouse rocket, but both Jonathan and I were, have been in mouse rocket for 15 years. So right. we've played mm-hmm. music together yeah. for 15 years in a rock setting. And I was like, you know, this is symphonic and poppy and, you know, and he's a composer. And so just thought of him and, uh, we work, we've already been working together for so long. So, um, we, we, we just kind of took off from there. But yeah. what was the process of learning it? Did it? Well, you know, I, I like a, a lot of people, I had encountered Mellotrons before, usually in recording studios is where most of them lived for, uh, you know, many decades. Um, and so, so I'd, I'd played one, you know, they had one over at Ardent okay. and I had played that it, it wasn't in the, the best shape. It was kind of weird and warbly, but like in a fun way. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I had some exposure to them and I, I had also used, uh, there are also some Meltron, uh, VST, like software versions mm-hmm. of those instruments, which I had used okay. in some of my own compositions. And, um, I mean, there's Meltron on, won't you be my neighbor soundtrack actually. Very cool. Uh, um, so, I, so yeah, I already had some, some exposure to it. Um, but, uh, Winston's Meltrons are really great because they're actually in the, best shape of any Mellotrons that I've ever yeah. seen in person. They really play well. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the issues with that instrument actually is just how difficult they are to, to play. It's like <laughs> taming a wild beast or <laughs> right. something, you know, you're like wrestling with a thing, trying to get it to do what you want. Um, sure. Even tape atrophy after a point becomes a, that's true. Yeah, Humidity thing. in the air. Right. Can right. It. It's, yeah. They could be temperamental. Sure. Definitely. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this album is from a, the wonderful live show that oh, I was at a wedding. <laughs> I still regret it. The more okay. I've learned, the more I've you can watch the movie, you can watch the film. Exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, it was. You guys did the live show in this very building last year. Um, so I'm fascinated to know how much of that performance was rehearsed, how much maybe uh, improvisation went into it. It seems very tight, but also kind of loose flowing as well. So. It's, it's both. Yeah. It's both. There, there was, you know, we got together a few times. We got together a couple of months before um, the performance, I guess, and with the four of us and just improvised a lot and um, came up with some, um, you know, parts of some, not maybe complete songs, but ideas and recorded a lot of them. And um, then Robbie and I sort of, you know, organized a lot of those into, into um, closer to being songs. And then we got, we got together again. Um, we sort of, you know, tightened it up a little bit, but there is, uh, we always like to leave a lot of room for improvisation too. Mm-hmm. So none of it was completely composed. Uh, you know, certain, certain parts of it are, sure. but there's always a degree of improvisation there. Excellent. Um, and then tell me a bit about the involvement of the other two. Um, yeah. Uh, so John Medeski and, and Pat, Pat Sansom both, yeah. um, w- as part of r- once we finished that duets for Mellotron show, like we started talking to the folks at Crosstown arts and they 
kind of hipped us, hipped us to this NEA grant that was available. So they helped us kind of secure that, which kind of let us kind of elevate what we did, you know, before to make it bigger. And so I was just like, well, we'll just multiply it by two. Let's try to do a quartet. Right. So um, Pat Sansone had come down to the show from Nashville for the duet show. I had not met him. He had, okay. we'd never seen him. And he was just like, this is great. And just kind of mentioned, I said, if we ever do it again, you want to be involved? And he's like, sure. And so he was, you know, we were, we were talking to him for about a year after that duet show. And then Modeski was just kind of a, like a, a wild dream. I was like, somebody said he played Mellotron and, um, through, through a friend here, got his phone number and just wow. called him a couple of times. And he's like, sure. Okay. And then <laughs> kind of worked with his manager and, and he was awesome. He was really great. Both of oh, those yeah. guys were just great collaborators and really easy to work with. Okay. So, was that? so fantastic working with both those guys. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. So um, I did mention that a film of the performance is forthcoming. Definitely want to hear about that. But I also want to note that you released an excellent music video yesterday mm -hmm. for the song Into the Sunrise. Mm -hmm. Everyone should check that out. But it just led me to think about, and then during the show, a lot of the visual media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just what was your idea with the visual media, how it fit in? And then also tell me, give us the details about the film. Sure. I, I'm, we did the, it's a similar show for both duets uh, and for this Mellotron Variations. We worked with, Winston Eggleston, there were his, um, his, his Mellotrons, but also he did all of these, uh, liquid light kind of sixties, like liquid oil based stuff. Right. And he worked with John Markham, who's a visual artist here in town. They worked together basically to set up the room, get it, you know, going. And so really that goes hand in hand with the music, like, like the visuals and the audio go together. So, um, you know, it, it was just, it, it felt like a natural extension because it's already kind of got a 60s, 70s feel sure. and it's updated. I mean, the, the visuals are updated a little bit, but still, you know, you just kind of lose yourself in it. Was yeah. Kind of idea. No, it was, it's a great <laughs> compliment. Cool. Um, and then once again, the music video, well done on that. It looks, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Ben, ben Redenauer, he goes by Ben Fiss. I don't, uh, mm -hmm. he's um, a great videographer around town was at the show and was just like, let's do something. So he started, he sent me some like sketches of ideas uh, and then kind of disappeared for a month and came back with, with what, what he, what, what he had, which is he's actually in his editing. It's almost like he's a fifth member kind of with his edits, like playing along and it's really, the cuts are great. And yeah. his choice of what he put in there, there's a sl small little narrative, like real abstract narrative in there. It's really, really cool. We'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes because everyone should check yeah. it out. Cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. About the movie. Do we have a date? Do we have a. Do we, have, we, do, we do. So, so uh, we've been working a lot with Justin Thompson at mm -hmm. Crosstown Arts here in Memphis. And uh, the, he called a couple months ago and said somebody uh, was donating some money to help make a surround sound mix of it. Oh, wonderful. So uh, we worked with Daniel Lynn over at Music and Art Studio to do a uh, surround sound mix of it. So that's going to premiere here at Crosstown Arts on Friday, November 8th in the Excellent. theater. So we're, we're really excited. It's, we did, got some really great interview footage with everybody. Um, the film looks fantastic. Film it's looks really great. beautiful. Yeah. And then there's some songs in the show, in the movie that aren't on the record. So it's kind of, it's excellent. Neat, so, yeah. so November 8th, November 8th, Friday. November if you're 8th. not at the Memphis music hall of fame <laughs> with me, be here with these guys <laughs> once again. Yeah, yeah. Once again, I'm missing out. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Thank you both so much for taking the time. Let, let folks know where they can find the album. I don't know if it's available. Yes. yes. So it's available on all your digital streaming platforms. Uh, we've got a, a, a vinyl copy of it with a beautiful, beautiful vinyl. Beautiful yeah. gate vinyl. It's a hot pink. Mm -hmm. uh, we had Loaded for Bear here in Memphis uh, help do that. And that's available at spaceflightrecords.com. 
uh, you can order it there. All right. Well, thank you both. Thanks for Robbie, nice. Jonathan. Yes. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, everyone. Have an idea for a podcast or a live talk show? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your show. just a little bit of D.D. Bridgewater, one of uh, one of this year's eight new inductees into the Memphis Music Hall of Fame with her song, All of Me. So as you may know, 2019 marks the eighth year of the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, and this new class brings the total number of inductees to an impressive 82. So among these elite eight are both household names and relative unknowns, but each of them played a crucial role in the development of Memphis music. So we'll be running through the inductees today in alphabetical order. Uh, We'll be keeping it fairly short. These are not full bios by any means, but I just want to give you a a taste of who's getting in this year. So we'll start where we began with Miss Dee Dee Bridgewater. So Bridgewater is an NEA jazz master with three Grammys, a Tony, and several top-selling albums under her belt. And she is definitely one of this year's most accomplished inductees, and also one of the hardest to fit into a single box. So during her four-decade spanning career, she's reached the apex of both the jazz and theater worlds, as well as making occasional yet notable splashes into pop music. So Bridgewater was born right here in Memphis in 1950, and her father was a jazz trumpeter and a teacher at Manassas High School. As a teenager, she and her family relocated to Michigan, and she uh, began performing as a vocalist around local clubs. In the early 1970s, she married and moved to New York City and launched her professional career as a member of the celebrated Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra, and then also worked alongside legends such as Dizzy Gillespie, Max Roach, Sonny Rollins, and others. In 1974, Bridgewater really had a breakout year. She released her celebrated debut album, Afro Blue, and began a two-year stint as Glinda the Good Witch in the Broadway musical The Wiz which would go on to earn her a Tony Award the following year for Best Featured Actress. So in the 1980s, Bridgewater relocated to France, uh, where, like so many African-American artists before, she was really welcomed as an equal by the white population in a way that she unfortunately wasn't able to at home. Anyway, she continued to perform in both clubs and theaters and really quickly became a celebrity in her adopted home. Um, often experimenting with different genres and styles during this time. So in the late 80s and 90s, early 90s, Bridgewater returned to her roots and released critically acclaimed albums such as In Montreux and Keeping Tradition, really showing that her jazz chops really, you know, hadn't diminished in those preceding years. So these albums gained international attention and really solidified her role as one of modern jazz's most talented singers. So in 2017, Bridgewater returned to her hometown to record an homage to Memphis music entitled Memphis, Yes, I'm Ready, which she recorded at Royal Studios. Quote, I want to honor this city, Memphis, which we call Soulsville, which has brought so much joy to so many people around the world. It has always been a part of me, and the proof is the more I come back, the more I feel at home, she said. 
So it's looking likely that Dee Dee Bridgewater will be in attendance at this year's induction ceremony, and her resume alone suggests that you will not want to miss her. So before we move on to our next artist, let's take a listen to one of the tracks from Memphis, Yes, I'm Ready. This is Dee Dee Bridgewater with her version of Carla Thomas's classic, Baby. Baby, oh baby, I love to call you baby. second inductee is soul man Don Bryant, who was a staple of high records during that legendary label's heyday in the 1970s. A native Memphian, Bryant got his start as a vocalist with the Four Kings, who as teenagers, that was his vocal group, who as teenagers were asked by uh, Willie Mitchell to join his band, perhaps the most respected ensemble of that era. So uh, they did, and... A few years later, when the Four Kings disbanded, Bryant became Mitchell's go-to vocalist um, as a soloist and eventually followed him to high records. So Don had also proven himself to be a talented songwriter. And in 1970, when a young singer named Ann Peebles joined the high records team, Don was uh, pretty much assigned with writing new materials for her. She was really his pet project that Willie gave to him. So the duo had a string of hits in the early 1970s, uh, most notably people's classic I Can't Stand the Rain, which they co-wrote. And in 1974, they decided this thing's going so well, let's just get married. And that they did. So um, Don, like I said, primarily worked with Ann Peebles, but he also wrote hits for high records, other stars such as Otis Clay, O.V. Wright, um, and others. So after high records closed for good, well, I should actually mention that Bryant did record one solo album there. Pretty well received, but it was largely a collection of covers, didn't really go anywhere, um, so he was primarily a writer. Anyway, after High Records closed, Bryant focused his attention on gospel music and wrote and recorded music throughout the 80s and 90s. So a few years ago, um, after decades out of the spotlight, Bryant was approached by Scott Bomore of the soul band The Bo Keys about becoming the group's lead singer. So it took some coaxing from fellow High Records alumni like Howard Grimes but Bryant did agree, and he restarted his career sometime in his mid-70s. So in 2016, Bryant released his comeback album, Don't Give Up on Love, which was his first solo release in nearly 50 years. So that album really made pretty big waves. They were right up in Rolling Stones, um, other national publications, and it was really met with just universal critical acclaim. And finally put the septuagenarian soul legend in the spotlight for Actually, probably the first time in his career. Anyway, before we move on, I do want to listen to the title track from that album. Here's Don Bryant with the excellent Don't Give Up on Love. Girl, I know you've been hurt so many times by love before and love don't seem to mean that much to you anymore 
inducted today will coincidentally be the third member of the Memphis Music Hall of Fame to be inducted twice after Alex Chilton and Al Jackson Jr., the latter of whom was actually a fellow member of the iconic soul outfit Booker T and the MGs. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, to guitar great Steve Cropper is now officially a member of the Hall of Fame as a soul artist. So anyway, Cropper, as you probably know, kicked off his music career as a member of Stax Records' proto-house band, The Marquis, who scored a hit single in 1961 with the instrumental track, Last Night. This was when he was barely out of his teens. Um, before long, he really ingrained himself into that label. Um, he was not only a founding member of the indispensable band Booker T and the MGs, but was also working as that label's A&R man. So throughout the 1960s, Cropper played guitar on some of the label's biggest hits, but uh, he was also a major songwriter for Stax, co-writing such seminal hits as Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, and Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour. So his uh, guitar playing during this period also proved to be really deeply influential to a generation of music musicians, including contemporaries and fellow guitar gods like Jimi Hendrix, Keith Richards, and Eric Clapton. So after leaving Stax in 1970, Kruppert continued to perform alongside other legends such as Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, Big Star, Jeff Beck, on and on and on, and he has shown very few signs of slowing down in the ensuing five decades. So today, Steve Cropper is rightly recognized as one of the world's greatest living guitar players, and he continues to lend his talents to musicians around the world. So while there are truly countless songs to choose from in Cropper's unbelievable catalog. One of my favorites uh, has always been his part on Otis Redding's Rock Me Baby, which I really think shows off his uh, distinct style. So that's what we're going to listen to today. This is Otis Redding with Rock Me Baby. You can rock me, baby. Really rock me. Keep on rocking me, little girl. girl. 
right. Our fourth inductee today is Florence Cole Talbert McCleave, a woman affectionately known as the First Lady in Grand Opera. But I'm guessing you all knew that already. So born in 1890, she was one of the first black women to receive international acclaim in her field. And by the time of her death in 1961, she was recognized as one of the most important African-Americans in opera history. So McLeave grew up in Detroit and relocated to Los Angeles as a teen, where she became the first African-American student to attend L.A. High School. I promise that her bio is just filled with first. Anyway, after graduating from USC, McLeave toured the U.S. as both a solo act and with um, Hands Jubilee Singers and recorded with record companies including Paramount, which was quite strange for the time. So in 1916, she moved to Chicago in order to continue her schooling. And that same year, she appeared as a soloist with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So in the interest of pursuing operatic training, McCleave moved to Europe to study under some famed vocal coaches. And she remained there from 1925 to 1927. So in her final year in Europe, she became the first black woman to play the role of Aida with an all-white company, which was uh, met with acclaim throughout the continent, apparently. So after retirement, McLeave settled in Memphis and became an educator and a patron of the arts and really made it her life's work to expose the African-American community to opera. So today, Opera Memphis actually has a program called the McLeave Project named after her that aims to continue her work by deepening Opera Memphis' engagement with issues of equity and diversity in opera. It's almost... 50 years later, still continuing that mission. So unfortunately, I was unable, although she did record in the 20s, I was unable to find any of her recordings. So we're just going to jump on to the next one. Our fifth inductees to this year's Hall of Fame is the group The Memphis Boys, who served as the house band for the criminally underrated American Sound Studios. So the group was composed of drummer Gene Chrisman, bassist Tommy Cogbill and Mike Leach, guitarist Reggie Young, pianist Bobby Wood, and organist Bobby Emmons. And together they played behind some of the biggest hits of the late 1960s and early 1970s. So formerly known, they were formerly known as the 827 Thomas Street Band, which was the address of American Sound Studios. And the group was formed by legendary producer Chips Moman. And uh, they really proved to be everything he had hoped for and more. So in the span of just a few years, the groups played on such seminal hits as Elvis Presley's Suspicious Minds, Dusty Springfield, Son of a Preacher Man, The Box Tops the Letter, Merrily Rush's Angel of the Morning, Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, and many, many more. I think there was at, at some point where uh, they said the top 100, that 25 of the top 100 songs featured the Memphis Boys. So pretty impressive. Anyway, when American Sound closed its doors in the early 70s, their group relocated to Nashville, which is where they were dubbed the Memphis Boys, a name that stuck. And they really gained a reputation around that town for having a more soulful sound than your typical Nashville session musicians, which made them pretty sought after. And it was there in Nashville that they also helped to define the outlaw country sound of the era and backed major figures of the genre, such as Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, and Waylon Jennings. So really, each of the members of the Memphis Boys could have been a star in their own right. Um, I guess you could argue Reggie Young kind of was, but despite that, they really remained together for decades and in doing so helped to define the Southern sound in various genres. So today I want to listen to one of those classic tracks from the American Sound Days, 
a song that helped to relaunch the struggling career of Elvis Presley. Here's Presley and the Memphis Boys with Suspicious Minds. We're caught in a trap I can't walk out Because I love you too much, baby Why can't you see What you're doing to me When you don't believe a word I say Sixth inductees in the 2019 Memphis Music Hall of Fame as Charlie Musselwhite, one of the world's finest blues harmonica players and a living testament to the fact that white boys can indeed play the authentic blues. So Musselwhite moved to Memphis as a small child from rural Mississippi in the late 1940s and really got to witness the city's musical revolution happen in real time just a few years later. So as a young man, he began began hanging out with and learning from some of the city's original blues masters, such as Furry Lewis and Gus Cannon, and became known in blues circles around Memphis as Memphis Charlie. So after uh, soaking up all their no- knowledge, like many bluesmen before him, Muscle White then traveled north to Chicago in search of better paying jobs. He claims that music was never his, he never considered it a real career path, that he just went to Chicago Fun work, not really realizing that it was becoming the new mecca of blues. Anyway, once there, he, he discovered that it indeed was that. And he began to associate and play with some of the biggest names in the genre, including Helen Wolf, John Lee Hooker, and Muddy Waters. So while working odd jobs, he found time to start his own band. And in 1966, he released his debut album, Stand Back, Here Comes Charlie Musselwhite's Southside Band, which was hailed as an instant classic. So that album really kind of went viral on the West Coast uh, among the hippie scene, made him a big star, and he eventually decided to go where the fans were and relocated to the Bay Area soon after. So before long, Muscle White was anointed the king of the West Coast blues scene, and he continued to release critically acclaimed albums, although his lack of touring touring kept him from really becoming a big national star. Anyway, by the late 80s and early 90s, Muscle White had kicked his drinking habit and really kind of ramped up his work. He began touring both nationally and internationally and also collaborated with everyone from Tom Waits to Dr. John to NXS. So most recently, he has released two albums in collaboration with Ben Harper, including the Grammy Award winning Get Up. So Muscle White is another performer who I would expect to see make an appearance in November, and I certainly can't wait to see him do his thing live. For now, though, let's take a listen to the title track from his latest album, No Mercy in This Land, which is his second album with Ben Harper. What would be the first thing you'd say to the Lord? The last thing you would dream if you couldn't dream no more? Won't you please help me to understand? Is there no mercy in this land? No mercy in this land. Follow the river, 
till the river ran dry Followed my lover till we said goodbye Followed you through soldiers who fired on command Is there no mercy in this land? Next up, we have Dan Penn, who was quietly one of the greatest songwriters of the Southern Soul era and a crucial force in both the Memphis and Alabama music scenes. So in my opinion, he's also a hell of a musician in his own right, but he's always preferred to dole out his particular brand of magic to others. Anyway, Penn grew up in Vernon, Alabama, and as a young man made his way to the Muscle Shoals area, where he became a regular presence at Rick Hall's Fame Studio. Um, he worked there as both a songwriter and an artist, and it was here that he found early success pinning hits for the likes of Conway Twitty, Percy Sledge, and Bobby Purify. So in 1966, Penn relocated to Memphis and began producing at Chip Moman's American Sound Studio, where I'm sure he became very familiar with our previous inductees, the Memphis Boys. Anyway, while at American, Penn and Moman co-wrote several soul music classics, including Aretha Franklin's Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, and James Carr's stunning Dark End of the Street. Um, He also frequently worked with writing partner Spooner Oldham, and together they penned hits for The Box Tops, Janis Joplin, and others. So in the 1970s, Dan Penn relocated to Nashville, where he continued to write and produce In 2013, um, an album was released of Dan Penn's solo recordings from his fame days, most of which had never been heard, and the quality of which took many people, including myself, by surprise. It's for that reason that today we're going to skip out on listening to some of Dan Penn's greatest hits, um, and instead take a listen to a track from that album called Keep On Talking. Here's Dan Penn, Keep On Talking. You say you need a loving man Keep on talking You say you need a guiding hand Keep on talking Oh, you say that you're not dissatisfied With the love your man has given You say that he's just a dragon You wanna do some real living Keep on talking Keep on Last, but absolutely, positively not least, we have Miss Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll herself. So I'm going to keep this one brief because I feel like her legacy is both very well known and also just too vast for me to sum up in a few words. But needless to say, she is the crown jewel of this year's class and a very welcome addition to the Hall of Fame. So as you may know, Tina grew up in Nutbush, Tennessee, just about an hour outside of Memphis. And she would travel here during her earliest years for shows. It was in 1956 that she met Ike Turner at a performance in St. Louis. And soon she became part of his act. And really her electric stage presence made her the centerpiece of the show before too long. So the ensemble, which toured as the Ike and Tina Turner Review, was renowned for its live performances, but really struggled for a while to find recording success. That all changed in a big way in the 1960s when the group recorded a string of hit singles that bled into the early 1970s. 
So Tina divorced Ike in 1978, famously alleging years of physical abuse and infidelity. But she bounced back in a big way. Um, after a series of guest appearances with other artists, she released her debut solo album, Private Dancer, in 1984, which went on to sell more than 20 million copies worldwide win, and win three Grammy Awards, including Record of the Year and Best Female Vocal Performance. For her, arguably her signature song, What's Love Got to Do With It. So since that time, as you know, she's uh, remained busy running the world. Definitely solidified herself as one of the 20th century's true musical geniuses. And now she quietly resides in Switzerland, which unfortunately means that it is unlikely she'll be returning to her home region for this tribute. But I'm excited to, to see what's in store either way. All right, before we wrap things up, let's take a listen to one of my favorite of her classic tracks and an ode to her hometown. This is Tina Turner with Nutbush City Limits. do it for our brief rundown of the 2019 Memphis Music Hall of Fame induction class. Once again, that ceremony will be held on November 8th at the same time as the Mellotron Variations viewing. Be it one of them, people. And tickets are on sale now. So come see us if you can. It's always a really, really good time. Alright, with that being said, I'd like to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their support of the show. And a big thanks again for Robbie and Jonathan for making the time to come out and chat about Mellotron Variations. I really enjoyed that album. I highly suggest you check it out. As always, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes and let a friend or two know about the show as well if you're enjoying it. All right, with that being said, let's hop on the monorail and head over to the Mud Island mixtape to add yet another song to our list. Right. Today on the Mud Island Mixtape, I want to hear a song from singer-songwriter Louise Page, who released her first full-length album, Silver Daughter, a little earlier this summer. So Page, who's a native of Pennsylvania, began playing in Memphis around 2016 and has quickly built a strong following, as well as a strong band. So I've been lucky enough to see Louise and her excellent band play several times this year, and they are quickly becoming one of my favorite local acts, namely because they're bringing something really fresh and different to the table. Um, she tends to have, I've seen different lineups, but there tends to be a couple horns, a violin, um, a, a keyboard, you know, always a, a interesting and diverse mix. Anyway, my admiration was absolutely solidified even further when I heard this new album, and I really think it captures the energy and emotions of the live show very well. Anyway, today I want to hear a track from Silver Daughter called Dirty Mirror, which Sounds a bit like Extraordinary Machine era Fiona Apple to me, which is a high compliment, I promise. 
All right, without further ado, here's Louise Page with Dirty Mirror, and I'll catch y'all next time. My mirror's dirty, cause I want it to reflect me. I live alone because I do not need protecting. I live alone because I want to be respected. I live alone because my mirror will reflect me. Stained glass houses and skipping stones You smashed right through the eastern wall The one that we tinted rose My mirror's dirty Cause I want it to reflect me I live alone because I do not need protecting I live alone because I want to be respected I live alone because my mirror will reflect me I made you like a habit and I wore you like a nun I worshipped you like a priestess till I devoured you like a tigress So now we treat each other Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.